In the recording studio, drummers don't always want their drums to ring as loudly as possible, and they'll use some creative techniques to dampen their resonance. Those methods include putting tape on the drum heads, stuffing blankets into the drums, or my favorite, just putting your wallet on the snare drum. Welcome to Strong Songs, a podcast about music. I'm your host, Kirk Hamilton, and as always, I'm so glad that you joined me to talk about music where they dampen the drums with blankets, music where they dampen the drums with tape, and sometimes music where they haven't dampened the drums at all. Strong Songs has no sponsors, no advertisers, no one telling me what to do or what kind of a show to make. It is entirely created thanks to the support of listeners like you. If you're already a patron of Strong Songs, thank you so much. And if you'd like to become one, go to patreon.com slash strong songs. On this episode, our first Q&A of year three, a now time-honored tradition where I take your musical questions and try to give you coherent answers. If you've got a question, send it to listeners at strongsongspodcast.com. But for now, let's bring up the horns, crack open the mailbag, and get to it. first question of 2021 isn't actually a question. It's just something that a few people wrote in about after I published my episode about Imogen Heap's Hide and Seek. A couple people wrote in just to mention the pioneering electronic artist uh, slash performance artist Laurie Anderson, who was definitely a precursor of Imogen Heap's music and someone that I could have mentioned on that episode. So I wanted to shout her out now. Laurie Anderson was a really innovative and interesting musician, and she has a tune called Oh Superman from uh, 1982, where she used some vocoding and some similar effects to what Imogen would then do, you know, 20 years later. And uh, and it is a really, really cool song. It's from this album, Big Science, that I recommend checking out. Hi. I'm not home right now. But if you want to leave a message, just start talking at the sound of the tone. It's pretty cool, pretty pioneering stuff. You can definitely hear the influence that it had on artists like Imogen Heap. Hello? This is your mother. Are you there? Are you coming home? So that's Laurie Anderson. Much respect to a legend. Mark writes, I had a question regarding Radiohead's Let Down. I understand that Johnny Greenwood's guitar is in a different time signature than the rest of the band. What makes this sound so perfect together with all the other instruments? Does his guitar line ever catch up with the rest of the band? Well, let's check out the specific example. This is Radiohead's Let Down from OK Computer. Okay, so this is a great example of polyrhythmic playing. I believe this is actually a cross-rhythmic composition. And yeah, Johnny Greenman is playing in five and the rest of the band is in four. More specifically, he's in five eight and the band is in four four. Here's the tempo of just the song. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. So polyrhythms are a pretty broad thing. A polyrhythm can just be playing triplets for a little while, so you're kind of implying three over 
two. And that's kind of how people describe it is, you know, a three over four means you're playing in three while the rest of the band is playing in four. So there's like a three, four time signature imposed over the four, four time signature. I would call this a kind of a five over four thing if I were just speaking broadly. Then a cross rhythm is when it really like the center, like the core of the composition is built around that kind of a polyrhythm, which I think is true in this case because Greenwood's whole guitar part is just groupings of five notes that are then superimposed over the rest of the band, which is playing in 4-4. It's helpful that this recording starts with just the guitars, and there are actually multiple guitar parts that are doing a lot of different things. It creates this really beautiful soundscape, but the part that I'm going to focus on is the electric guitar part. It's over on the left. Let's just listen one time, and then I'll break down the counting. So let's just focus on that electric guitar part over on the left. It's playing a 5-8 figure that sounds like this. And then it just kind of repeats. So you can think of it as being a grouping of five where the fifth note is that high note. And that's kind of how you can orient yourself. It's one, two, three, four, five. 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 So when you play it in eighth notes at tempo, you get this. So to Mark's question, how does he fit with the band? Well, the main way that he fits with the band is that he's playing at the same tempo and the arrangement has been built around him playing that guitar part. So he's not off doing something completely alien. He's just sort of moving according to a different interpretation of the same tempo. So he fits in, he locks in with the band. It's just that when you really focus on what he's playing, you can notice that he's playing these little groupings of five that are designed to fit in the same amount of time as the rest of the band. But there are certainly times where he adjusts his guitar part and comes to meet the rest of the band, particularly on the chorus. He's changed his guitar part here and is playing a very different guitar part just over the chorus that's much more in sync with the rest of the band. So then after the chorus, they go back to it on the verse and sort of reset. So it's a way of adding tension to the verse. It's very subtle. It's not showy, you know, it's not like a prog band doing a really clear, we're playing in 7-8, we're playing in 5-8 over 4-4 kind of a thing. He's just playing this weird kind of twisting guitar part that even if you don't notice what he's doing, it just creates this effect of kind of a swirl. And the way that the vocals are sort of panned left and right during the verses, the whole thing creates a kind of a disorienting effect that then snaps more into focus for this big release during the chorus. It's super effective. I mean, you may have heard this, but Radiohead is a really, really good band. Um, it's almost like someone should do an episode about a song from OK Computer or something. But yeah, I mean, that that's what's going on. That's what they're using that five over eight cross rhythm to do. This is a great song. I could do a whole episode about it, uh, but I won't. But for now, yeah, I mean, cool song, Johnny Greenwood rules, and Radiohead is, is a great band. Seth writes, any idea what Jack White uses in the solo section of Icky Thump? That is the White Stripes Jack White, a master of guitar tone. Man, that guy gets some good guitar tones. Let's listen to that solo and see if I can figure out what Jack might be using. (laughs) 
Dude, the white stripes rock. So here he's just playing distorted guitar overdubbed, but coming up, he starts using an octave pedal with some really cool sounds. So it's funny, this is actually something I was just talking about on the episode about Imogen Heap's Hide and Seek, about uh, octave pedals and harmonizers. Uh, I know that Jack White is fond of the electroharmonics POG, which is a type of octave pedal that can do octaves below or octaves above a signal. So he's using it, I think, here to do lower, and then he also uses it to get higher signals. I think he uses whammy pedals, so he uses all kinds of cool boutique and weird old custom gear. But I know he likes the POG, and I think this is a POG making this sound. I think he's also using it when he gets this really weird, super high sound. He's just jumping the octave and having it be like 100% in the mix. And I'm pretty sure that's what this is, even though it sounds like some kind of weird video game synthesizer. What a good band. Um, I'm going to have to do a White Stripes song on Strong Songs at some point. Almost every one of their songs is extremely strong. Uh, they rule. Jack White is just the tone master. He gets so many cool tones and really just understands the guitar on a very deep level. He's really a scholar of the instrument. So yeah, that's what it is. It's an electroharmonics pog. Very cool pedal. I don't have one, but you know, every time a pedal comes up on this show, I'm like, I kind of want one of those. So I'll probably get one one day, even though I'm certainly no guitar soloist. Danny writes, I had a dream last night in which Kat Edmondson was singing directly to me. I had been watching Cafe Society the night before, and she was singing a song that I very clearly remembered after waking up, but I can't place the song. It sounds like a Tin Pan Alley or a Jazz Age standard. In my dream, it was fully orchestrated with a jazz band and it had a swing beat. The only lyrics I remember from the song in my dream are from the last five notes of the main phrase, I dream about you. If this is an existing song, those may not be the actual lyrics, but they were in my dream. I included a sound clip that I recorded on the piano so that you can hear the musical phrase I heard in my dream. Can you please help me identify this song? I'm kind of hoping it's not an existing song because it's a great simple melody that I can write for a jazz song if I want to, but it does seem familiar. Okay, so I listened to this. Um, I could kind of spend some time trying to figure it out on my own, but I thought it would be fun if instead I asked you lovely listeners if you can help Danny out and, and let him know either that this is a true song that came to him in a dream that he can then write, or if it is an existing song. Uh, so here is the example that Danny recorded playing on piano of the melody that he heard to a tune that, to him at least, was called I Dream About You. So I don't know this song. Um, it might be a song that uh, that I just don't know and haven't heard. I haven't looked into it too much. It sounds a little bit like Blue Monk to me, the Thelonious Monk song, but it's not Blue Monk. So anyways, if this is a song, please write in and let us know, and I will forward your message along to Danny, or I'll, I'll update people on a future episode. And if it's not a song, and this is something that Danny heard in a dream, no one listening to this can try to write that song. This is Danny's song. It's his dream song, and it came to him in a dream, so he's the one who gets to write it. Uh, this is official on the record on 
Strong Songs. Danny, it's your song if it isn't already another song. So yeah, write in listeners at strongsongspodcast.com and let's get to the bottom of this. Brendan writes, I've been listening a lot to the album Trust in the Life Force of the Deep Mystery by The Comet Is Coming. I'm wondering what you think of the technique of saxophonist Shabaka Hutchings, particularly on the track Summon the Fire. Sounds like he's using a reverb effect and possibly some other distortion that adds to the overall sci-fi anxiety of the song. He manages to make the saxophone sound abrasive and compelling at the same time. Do you know what he's doing? Well, first of all, I actually just recently listened to this album for the first time. I'm in a listening club with some friends, and each of us take turns, you know, picking albums for the other ones to listen to that week. And uh, my buddy Rob picked this as his pick, and I'd never heard The Comet Is Coming, and I listened to this album. This album rips, and this is actually my favorite song on it, partly because it features Shabaka Hutchings on on the saxophone, and it's such a cool tune and has such a killer groove. So let's listen a little bit, and then I can talk a bit about what Hutchings is doing to get that sound, because I agree, the saxophone sounds super cool on this track. that's the basic gist of what he does at least at the beginning and it's this really cool repetitive part that he really digs into using these effects and that sound to eventually become a part of the groove. So this whole track, Summon the Fire, is a steady build. That drum beat has got that kind of building train kind of thing going, and it's just this churn that builds and builds and builds. When the synth comes in, it sounds so good. Okay, so let's talk about Hutchings' sound. Um, This is a combination of effects that he's using and also just saxophone techniques. And between the two of them, he's getting this really cool kind of like kind of choked and really guttural and intense sound. So in terms of effects, I'm hearing just some regular reverb, definitely some distortion, and a delay that they're doing something kind of specific with. Those are the main effects that I'm hearing. And then there's what he's doing on the saxophone. So this is a tenor saxophone. This tune is in G minor, which is A minor for the tenor saxophone. I've talked about transposition before. I'm not going to do it here. A minor on the saxophone means he's kind of in the middle of the horn on the lower register, and he's going between an A and a G and a C, kind of right here. I'm going to get my tenor saxophone out and demonstrate. So he's playing a line that kind of goes like this. A thing that you can do on the saxophone is you can play overtones on the saxophone. I've also talked about overtones in the past. Overtones are a big part of building your saxophone sound. And what that means is you can use your embouchure and your airflow to isolate higher pitches in the fundamental notes that you're playing. So you can play a low note, and then you can play a higher note without moving your fingers, and then even higher notes, and you can do all these kind of funny sounds. What that means is that on the saxophone, you can also do semi-overtones or sort of like you can play a C, and then you can put down a bunch of fingers, but not not all of the fingers to get a low C, and you kind of start getting these weird kind of lidded or sort of muted sounds that he's doing a lot of great work with. Um, With the A, he's kind of getting this funky A sound. 
Later he goes up to a B flat and does this, which is a great note to do this on because low B flat is actually the lowest note on the horn. And if you get an overtone out of it, you can actually just pop the, you press every key on the saxophone down and then just pop the very middle finger. It's your left ring finger. And it splits the tone and gets you this really gnarly sound that can have all these multiphonics in it. And it's a, it's a really cool tenor saxophone sound that is really kind of only possible on that B flat up the octave. And it gives you this, that kind of guttural sound, that really intense, more animalistic sound that doesn't quite sound like a clean saxophone. It sounds more like someone just shouting. So then in terms of effects, I'm just going to use a culture vulture to get some distortion on this. So this will, you'll just keep playing that line and I'm going to add some distortion. So here's some distortion on that line. The last thing that leaves is the delay, or really, it sounds like a tape echo to me. Tape echo, sometimes they actually use real tape to record you and then play it back, but a lot of times it's a digitally sort of approximated effect. But a tape echo is a type of delay, and it echoes your sound and also kind of distorts it and degrades it as it continues to echo. So each subsequent echo sounds a little bit different, a little bit warped and pulled away from the original sound, which helps when you're listening because it's kind of weird to hear an exact copy of the original sound just echoed over and over again. So the nice thing about tape echoes is they allow the echo to blend a little bit more into the background and they allow the fundamental sound to still ring through. I'm definitely hearing that here. Sounds like they've also got some kind of low pass filter on that tape echo, so they're cutting out a lot of the low frequencies and just echoing the kind of higher sounds, the higher frequencies of the original sound. And that creates this really kind of bouncy, jumbly, chaotic sound. You know, all of those effects together, the sort of weird half fingerings that he's doing, the distortion, that tape echo, it kind of turns the saxophone into this groove instrument. It's much more of a rhythm section role on this track, and I really like that a lot. Um, this must be a blow to get through this whole song. Just, you gotta have chops of steel to get through the whole thing, but this is probably really fun to play. Okay, so here's my approximation with all of that in, the reverb, the distortion, the tape echo, and also just some of those little saxophone tricks, those half fingerings and other weird semi-overtones and multiphonics that are very subtle, but they add up. Okay, here we go. Our tones aren't exactly the same, but that's that's fairly close to what he's doing, and he has his own distinct great sound, but I feel like I got pretty close here. On the tone and effects tip for a little while, Trey writes in the They Might Be Giant song Mrs. Bluebeard, at around 54 seconds in, there is a guitar solo, but it has a weird noise. I'm thinking it might be a talk box, but I'm not sure. What is it? Well, let's listen to the They Might Be Giant song Mrs. Bluebeard and see what we hear. Accept what I get. Okay, so this is a really cool song. And that's the guitar effect in question over there on the right. Most people 
Nice. I dig this song a lot. This is off of I Like Fun, a more recent They Might Be Giants album from 2018. I don't know it that well, though. I've listened to it some. Um, I really like some of their more recent stuff. They've really just, they're such a mature band at this point. They've created so much music and have found so many different sounds. They just are this, it's just this really solid thing to listen to them. It's always cool ideas, always cool stuff going on. I think this is probably Flansburg, John Flansburg playing guitar, though I'm not totally sure who it is. But uh, yeah, let's try to recreate that tone. What I'm kind of hearing is some sort of envelope filter, auto wah, a little bit of distortion, and a phaser, which I've talked about quite a bit on the show. And it's a phaser that's giving it that kind of nice motion uh, within the tone itself. Okay, so here's just the guitar line that he's playing with, with just a little bit of overdrive, but no other effects. Now let's add a phaser. This is just going to take the signal and then run it in and out of phase with itself. It just kind of runs this phase that sort of cancels out different parts of the signal so you get this sense of movement and space. So here's that same thing with a phaser. Right, now let's put on an auto wah, which is actually kind of similar to a phaser in some ways. It's another EQ filter, which a wah-wah pedal is really just kind of an EQ filter, a really dramatic one that you control with your foot. So this is doing the same kind of a thing, only it's doing it automatically rather than uh, with your foot. This might be a wah-wah pedal on the recording, but it sounds more to me like some sort of an auto filter. So here's that. That's it, phaser plus auto wah plus some sort of overdrive. This is a really cool song. What a great band. Most people wouldn't hang the corpses up for review. Trey actually has a second question. He writes, I'm a student percussionist in band and joined jazz band a few weeks ago for my school. I got lots of fun opportunities like getting to learn the drum set and play some auxiliary percussion, but I'm also having trouble motivating myself to play mallet percussion. I don't know how much experience we have with mallet percussion, but even if you don't, can you give me some words of advice on practicing? Well, Trey, this is a tough one. I knew a lot of drummers in high school and in college, um, in particular in high school, who really resisted learning the mallet stuff. And to explain to everybody else, a lot of times when you're learning drums in school, they want you to be learning something with some harmony on it as well. So a lot of times music instructors will say, well, you should learn the vibraphone as well, because in a jazz band, you know, the drums and the vibraphone, they kind of sit next to each other in the rhythm section, even though the vibes are much more of a harmonic instrument than a percussive instrument, despite the fact that you're playing them with mallets. Um, there's this kind of thought that if you're going to learn something as a drummer that has chords and harmony and can play scales along with the rest of the band, you should learn the vibraphone. Of course, if you're playing in a concert ensemble, you're expected to be able to play xylophone and marimba and any mallet instruments that may be called for because a percussion player in a larger ensemble like an orchestra or a wind ensemble will need to play all sorts of different things, including the mallet instruments, and that's kind of just expected of you. But in a jazz band, as the drummer in the jazz band, you're not really expected, like in a professional jazz band to get up and also play vibraphone. So as a drummer being asked to play the vibes, you're being asked to learn basically a whole new discipline and a very different kind of instrument than the one that you're studying. So I would understand why you would feel like it's just one too many things. You're you're studying drum set, which is already like six instruments altogether. It's a really complicated thing, a really important part of the band. Adding vibraphone to that just feels like, I don't know, like you're in culinary school and then suddenly they're making you learn the trapeze. It's a very different discipline. So I get why you would feel 
feel not that motivated to practice because you're probably having a lot of fun playing the drums. However, here's how you can think of it. You really want to learn harmony. You're learning drums, and this is kind of your first instrument, I'm guessing, just by the sort of context of your letter. And if that's your first instrument, you really want to start learning a harmonic instrument as quickly as possible. All of the drummers that I know, every professional drummer that I know, they play some piano. And that's not because you're going to need to play piano in a band. It's because in order to be a well-rounded musician, you want to have some harmonic knowledge and the ability to write music and arrange music, the ability to write scores and understand that whole part of music. And as a drummer, it actually is possible as a student drummer to never really learn any of that because you don't have to for the ensembles that you're in. So this is your director's way of working around that and encouraging you to be a well-rounded musician and while it may not feel as fun you don't have to become Lionel Hampton on the vibes you know you can just kind of practice them and start to get some scales down and then maybe later if you're still serious about music take some piano lessons and you'll find that the same harmonic principles that you learned on the vibraphone apply to the piano because the vibraphone has the same layout as a piano keyboard but whether it's vibraphone xylophone or marimba practice it take it as seriously as you have time for and treat it as an investment in your musical future you'll really thank yourself down the road if you become a more serious musician if you really get into it you will look back and be like oh my god I'm so glad that I took the time to learn this because now just so many more doors are open to me, both musically, professionally, whatever, because I have this harmonic knowledge and this ability. And if you don't do it, you'll have to do it at some point and it'll be even harder the longer you wait. And then you'll look back and be like, man, when that guy on the podcast told me that I should be learning piano or practicing vibraphone, he was right and I should have done it and I wish I had. So, you know, it's totally your choice. I totally understand why you feel how you do and good luck with everything. Good luck with band and uh, just keep on practicing, man. Igor writes with a question about the new Strong Songs theme music. He writes, uh, the music caught my attention and I was wondering if you could recommend similarly upbeat, jazzy, or saxy songs or bands that I could listen to. So I get questions like this now and again. It's not usually someone saying, what are bands that sound like the Strong Songs theme music? But I've gotten this question before, this kind of thing, like, what is that that vibe of sort of high energy ensemble jazz that's instrumental and sort of peppy in that certain way. What was the sound you were going for with that? And uh, when I talked about uh, Tank from Cowboy Bebop, the great Yoko Kano's Tank and her music, uh, I got similar questions and people will say, I love the Cowboy Bebop soundtrack. I love that sound. Where can I listen to more music like that? Okay, three, two, one, it's jam. I haven't always had a good answer for them. You know, I'll say, well, Maynard Ferguson's big band is a good place to go. In the 70s, he was doing some stuff that kind of had that slightly, like, winking, high-octane big band sound. But I've recently become obsessed with a collection of albums from the 1970s that actually really have the kind of sound that I think many people have actually asked me about over the years. And I think, Igor, this might be something that you'll dig, too. And that is the KPM 1000 series. So in the 70s, the British record label KPM made these library recordings, and there were just a ton of them. They were intended to be used by advertisement firms or TV theme songs. They hired great writers, though, and the musicians they got were great, and the music rules. The 
record label APM now owns all of those KPM recordings and only recently digitized the whole thing. So you can just go on a streaming service and listen to any of these records. There's a billion of them. And they used to be really prized collector's items because they were actually kind of hard to find, even though they weren't supposed to be. They were supposed to just be for anyone. You know, music you just license for anything. But they were still kind of hard to come by because they hadn't been fully digitized and they weren't seen always as, you know, important artistic recordings because they were library music. It was just studio musicians and studio composers. They didn't vanish from sight entirely. Um, Hip-hop producers really like sampling from these albums because they make for great samples. You'll actually know this one. This is probably the most famous of the KPM 1000 series songs. This is by Keith Mansfield, and it's called Funky Fanfare, and it was famously sampled by the producer Danger Mouse on his collaboration with MF Doom called Danger Doom. Man, I just love this sound, the way everything has been recorded, the way the bass sounds, the way the drums sound, the way it comes together to get that vibe. It's not all so funky or self-evidently cool. A lot of the stuff is actually really kind of corny or it's written to be used as like a sports broadcast jingle or in an advertisement or as the theme for a game show. There's also some really smooth stuff that's just very nicely put together. Listening to one of these albums just feels a little bit like panning for gold. You never know what you're going to get. Every track is totally different, and some of them just really kill. There's an organ player named Alan Hawkshaw who's super good, and all of his tracks are just these really neat organ-driven tunes. It's extremely pleasing music, or at least I find it very pleasing. You'll find yourself recognizing things like that first track, The Zodiac, was actually one of the opening tracks in that movie, The Full Monty. And I remember as a kid listening to that soundtrack and being really into that tune and being like, what is this sound? I love this big band sound. So I've actually loved that sound for almost my entire life, despite not knowing the source, you know, that it came from this series of library recordings made by KPM back in the 1970s. And now that I know, it just feels like I've uncovered this treasure trove of cool music. So I do want to just share it with all of you. I'm kind of taking Igor's question as an excuse to tell you all about it, but I do think you should all check it out because it's a lot of fun and it's the kind of music that I think a lot of you would really enjoy. So yeah, the KPM 1000 series, it's super good stuff. A bunch of great musicians who deserve recognition for all the great work that they did.
Jennifer writes, my question is a little related to some of the episodes you have done on musicals. You talk about a musical theme which repeats in one form or another throughout all the songs in the musical. I adore musicals for exactly this reason. Seeing a show in person is one of the best and most moving things I have ever experienced. Anyways, I have a band that I really enjoy and they do the same sort of thing through the tracks on their album. The band is called Mariana's Trench. Their album Ever After has a unique setup in that it is like one continuous piece of music. Maybe it's not so unique? There are a variety of songs and styles, but I've noticed an underlying common beat. I'm not sure if I'm describing it right. It's like a phrase that I can catch at certain points throughout the whole album. Anyway, I didn't listen to this one on shuffle because it just doesn't feel the same. So my question is this, am I right that there is a theme or a phrase to tie this album together? And also, is this common? Do other bands do something similar? Well, yes. So Jennifer, this is what's called a concept album. This is something I've talked about a few times in the past, but not really gotten super in detail with or anything. But yeah, anytime you make an album where each piece of music relates to a broader story, like it isn't just a collection of singles, it's more of a concept, hence the name concept album. Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band's kind of a concept album. Pink Floyd's The Wall, definitely a concept album. Um, Sufjan Stevens's Illinois, that whole thing where he was going to do an album for each of the 50 states. Illinois is certainly a concept album just like Michigan. Prince's Purple Rain is a concept album with an accompanying movie. Janelle Monae's Arch Android, I talked about Tightrope off of that album, definitely a concept album based loosely on the sci-fi film Metropolis. And actually, Janelle Monae's oeuvre, like all of her albums, are sort of a broader concept, like they relate to one another and tell a bigger story across multiple concept albums. So any album where there's an overarching theme is a concept album, and a lot of times concept albums will then use the same kinds of motifs as musicals, like what you're describing the Mariana's Trench is doing. Actually, Lin-Manuel Miranda's Hamilton started out as a concept album. Anais Mitchell's Hadestown, I've also done an episode on uh, songs from Hadestown, that also started out as a concept album. So it's a pretty familiar thing, and if you like musicals, it's not surprising that you like concept albums. Now, Mariana's Trench is a really fun band. I've had a few listeners tell me about them ask me to analyze their music on the show. I don't have any near-term plans to do that, but I did check them out because I'd never heard them before. And I like Ever After. I actually really like their album Astoria, which is this concept album about the Goonies. It's a fun album, and they're clearly having a really good time. They're channeling a lot of classic 80s sounds. There's a Eurythmic synth in there, a Bananarama synth. They kind of get a lot of the classics, so it feels a little bit like a time capsule. Plus, some of the songs are just very catchy and fun. So, you know, I'm more familiar with that album than I am with Ever After, but I'm guessing it's the same kind of a thing. And yeah, that's a concept album. I've talked about actually a lot of concept albums on Strong Songs. I really like concept albums in general. I like the idea of tying your album together with a little bit more than just the fact that all of the songs are on the same disc. Uh, so yeah, that's that's a concept album, and they're very cool, and there are a whole lot of them out there. Sometimes you can't Sam writes... 
In your Bjork episode, you referred to the lyrics being sung by the narrator. That was the first time I had heard that perspective. I always assumed songs were being sung from the writer or singer's perspective. Taylor Swift's folklore threw me for a loop until I understood the narrator perspective shift. Do you assume first that a song is being sung by a narrator protagonist? Are there other good examples of famous songs that are sung from that perspective? Uh, This is a kind of a fun question. It's something I didn't think about or really articulate until I started making this show. Uh, The Dancing Queen episode about ABBA's Dancing Queen was the first time I really started thinking about how perspective can work in a song. I think it's used really effectively in that song. And uh, yeah, I don't know if I assume first at this point that I'm hearing a narrator rather than the specific point of view of the person who wrote the song, though I think it's kind of safer to assume that a lot of the time. Um, Some recent examples of songs that include alternate perspectives or possible alternate perspectives are actually two out of the three songs that I've covered in year three of Strong Songs. Um, Imogen Heap's Hide and Seek is pretty clearly from, I guess, from her own perspective, but it's also a little nebulous. It could be a protagonist. It could just be a written character. And uh, Steely Dan's Babylon Sisters. Steely Dan in general, I talked about this on that episode, but they uh, they write songs that feel like they're being, uh, you know, narrated by characters. There's a lot of first person, but I don't always get the sense that it's explicitly Fagin or Becker's perspective in the lyrics to a lot of their songs. They write about characters a lot and put themselves into the shoes of these other characters. And I think they identify with those characters in a lot of ways. But I think it's it's best or at least most interesting to think of it first and foremost like a character. David Bowie also wrote from various perspectives in uh, Space Oddity. He's talking from the perspective of ground control and from the perspective of Major Tom. Neither of those people are David Bowie, but he's certainly channeling feelings that he's had. And then when he becomes Ziggy Stardust, well, he's speaking from the perspective of Ziggy Stardust, a fictional character. And in Starman, the other song I talked about on that episode, he's actually not speaking as Ziggy Stardust. He's speaking as these children. I think it's one kid or maybe two kids talking to each other who are receiving the signal from the Starman from outer space. So he's casting himself all over the place on that album. By the way, to throw it back to Jennifer, uh, The Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust and The Spiders from Mars is also a concept album. Every character that you write or create as a writer has some aspect of yourself in it, right? Like whoever it is, there's some part of yourself that you're exploring because you're the one imagining them. But I do think that a lot of writers tend to think of the lyrics of their songs as being spoken by someone else. Maybe it's someone just sort of two quantum jumps over from themselves. You know, it's like a really close echo, someone that looks just like you, but maybe they have, you know, pierced ears or a mustache or something. Um, But it's like a a version of yourself, but it's not exactly you. I think that's actually pretty common. And that it's usually a mistake to assume that the person singing the song who wrote the song is speaking specifically and directly through the lyrics. Like, that's a very elementary way to write a song. A lot of people's first songs will be like that. They'll think, well, I'm sad, so I'm going to write a song that's called I'm Sad, and it's going to go, I'm sad because this specific bad thing happened to me. And then, yeah, okay, that's really direct, and you're just speaking for your own feelings. But as you continue to write, people start to be like, well, I'm sad, but I want to write about sadness, but from a different perspective, and I'm going to imagine a character, and I'm going to tell a whole story about them and something that happened to them, and it's going to just be a metaphor for the thing that happened to me, and I'm going to kind of channel my sadness into making that metaphor feel real, and then that will be how I'll communicate the feeling that I'm having. So the elementary version is you've moved away from your family and you're feeling lonely, so you write a song about feeling lonely 
lonely because you're not with your family. And the more advanced version of that is to write a song about a dog. And it's the family dog who's been left alone at home for the weekend because of an emergency. And he's all alone and he doesn't know why. And he has to kind of wrestle with that. And the whole thing is from his perspective as he explores the house by himself and tries to figure out why everyone is missing and what his place is in this world with no one in it. It's still the same kinds of feelings. You're just telling a story about a very different character than yourself. And also, you can write songs about people who are terrible and despicable and nothing like you. You can just imagine a totally different kind of person. And that's an important thing for writers to be able to do. I see this sometimes where someone will write a song from the perspective of an awful person, like an abusive person. There are some great songs that have been written about that kind of person. And that doesn't mean that the songwriter is also awful and abusive. Usually the opposite. They're trying to explore that kind of mentality through their art. And so, yeah, I guess I do move more and more toward thinking uh, at least one step removed from the songwriter when I'm interpreting lyrics and thinking about what a song is about. And I think that's a helpful way to start. And then, you know, if you talk to the to the artist or you hear an interview with them and they say, yes, this is specifically about this thing I was feeling, okay, then you can kind of factor that into your interpretation of the song. But when it comes time to just look at a song, flat out listen to the lyrics, yeah, start a little bit removed and just think of it more like a story that someone's telling you and draw your own conclusions about what the meaning is to you. Jeff writes, I'm not sure if you've seen Wolf Walkers on Apple TV+. Highly recommended if you haven't, but I have a question regarding the music and Celtic music more generally. There's one song in particular that I really love on the soundtrack called Maeve's Song. It has this haunting, enchanting sound to it that I find common in Celtic music and is very fitting for Wolf Walkers, but I can't tell what kind of scale it's built on. Well, you're currently hearing Maeve's Song from Wolf Walkers. Let's just listen to it a little bit and then see if, uh, if we can answer Jeff's question. So what I'm hearing here is actually pretty straightforward. I'm kind of just hearing an E minor pentatonic scale. So they're kind of playing just five notes, E, G, A, B, and D. And then sometimes they're adding an F sharp as well. That's pretty common in folk music, and uh, this pentatonic scale gets a lot of work on this song and demonstrates how much mileage you can get out of a pentatonic scale. I actually got a few emails about Wolfwalkers, which I hadn't heard about, but the minute I saw the art, I knew uh, that it was a Tom Moore movie. I've seen his other two movies, The Secret of Kells and Song of the Sea, both amazing movies, and I really liked Wolfwalkers, too. All three of those movies are super cool. Tom Moore is an Irish animator, director, and he makes these movies that are about Irish folklore and Celtic folklore, and they don't look like anything you've ever seen before. They're gorgeous looking, and they're also just very different in terms of tone and storytelling and themes than most animated movies, and I guess by that I mean Disney movies, just because the Disney approach to storytelling is so just overwhelming and pervasive. You know, everywhere we go, everything feels like a Disney story, but it's only one way of telling a story, and these these stories are very, very different in all three of those movies. And Wolfwalkers is super cool. Um, one thing that all three movies also have in common is Bruno Coulet, the composer, who is an amazing composer, one of my favorite film scores. He also scored Coraline, and his scores are uniformly great.
He's so good. He really is one of my favorite composers. On Wolfwalkers, he was joined by Kyla, an Irish band. I want to say that it's Kyla. It might be Kayla. Uh, they have an accent there on the I, and I'm not sure how to pronounce that. But uh, they're an Irish band that provided actually a Mabe's tune, that first tune that we listened to. They played that. And Aurora actually sings on some of the songs in the movie as well. Aurora is a Norwegian singer who, uh, speaking of Disney, you may know as the voice of the voice of the North in Frozen 2. She sings that DSE Ray actually. Actually, that calls Elsa to the north in Frozen 2. So yeah, uh, Wolfwalkers is a great movie. It has really, really good music. All of those movies are good. I th- you should just check all three of them out. If you haven't heard of these movies, go watch them. And uh, to answer your question, uh, that's kind of a very long way of answering the question, but it's just a pentatonic scale. An E minor pentatonic scale pretty much gets that whole song done. And a lot of folk music, that kind of Irish and Celtic folk music, relies on the pentatonic scale. Gets quite a bit of use out of it. Um, and uh, yeah, it's a, it can be a really beautiful sound. Ryan writes, I recently discovered Song for My Father by Horace Silver, which I've become obsessed with. I love how the horns play in unison and then split off into harmonies. My question is, what is making them sound so dissonant? Is it the chord choice, or are they slightly out of tune with each other, or a bit of both? Well, this is a great jazz recording from 1965, Horace Silver's quintet playing Song for My Father, so let's just listen and uh, and see if we can figure out what Ryan is talking about. such a great melody on this tune and yeah they're going back and forth between total unison and harmony and the harmonies that they're playing are just a little bit more angular than you might expect i don't think they're playing out of tune i think that it's just that the chords are a little bit discordant on purpose that's how it's supposed to sound So this is Carmel Jones on trumpet and the great Joe Henderson on tenor saxophone. Uh, Joe was a big influence on me as a tenor saxophonist, one of my top guys. I transcribed a lot of his solos. I transcribed his solo on this track. It's actually one of the most famous Joe Henderson solos on Song for My Father. So what they're doing is they're starting in total unison. Joe is up in his upper register on the tenor saxophone. And this first phrase with all these little triplets as it kind of glides its way down, they're totally playing in unison. They're playing the same notes. And then right there, boom, they split into harmony. And that's not just harmony, that's close harmony. They're only a whole step apart. So Jones on trumpet is playing an E-flat, concert E-flat, and Henderson on tenor sax is playing a D-flat, one whole step below that. So they are right next to each other. They're not a half step apart, but a whole step is still considered kind of a rub, a whole step rub. It's a little bit less tight than a half step rub. Obviously, it's not a half step away, it's a whole step away, but it's still pretty close. And if you only have two notes harmonizing, and they're harmonizing in a whole step, it's actually a really, really cool sound because it's kind of, it raises your shoulder up a little bit. It's kind of angular. It's kind of discordant. Of course, it matches up with the harmony. The second chord here is an E flat seven chord. So Jones is playing the one, an E flat on top, and Joe Henderson is playing a D flat, the flat seven. And when you put the one and the flat seven right next to each other, you get that sound, which you'll actually hear a lot in blues tunes and other jazz tunes. So then throughout the rest of this arrangement, they're doing kind of the same thing. They'll come together into unison, then they'll split into harmony, and sometimes it's a whole step harmony, sometimes it's a little farther apart, but it's always a little bit odd. Like it always has a little bit of 
of tension in the harmonies that they're playing. So it's not out of tune. It's just tense and maybe a little more tense than you would be expecting from two horns harmonizing together. They're not going for a beautiful consonant sound. They're going for something with a little bit more of an edge. Fun fact about Song for My Father, since I just did an episode on Steely Dan's Babylon Sisters, while I was talking about Steely Dan, uh, I had a section there where I was going to talk a little bit about Ricky Don't Lose That Number. Uh, on Steely Dan's album from 1974, Pretzel Logic, the opening track, Ricky Don't Lose That Number, starts in a very familiar way that uh, really underlines how Becker and Fagan were drawing so many sounds from the world of jazz. Here's the beginning of Horace Silver's Song for My Father. Here's the beginning of Steely Dan's Ricky Don't Lose That Number from almost 10 years later. So even if you've never heard Song From My Father, chances are you've kind of heard Song From My Father, which is something that you can say for a lot of jazz when it comes down to it. jazz, Arjun writes, you had Carlos Ini playing Barry Sachs on your new theme music and it got me thinking about something I've heard recently in the online discourse. I've heard a few people talking about the pairing of video games and jazz. Most hyperbolically, I have seen it said that video games could save jazz. I was curious if you had any thoughts as someone who is invested in both. Yeah, I mean, I guess I have some thoughts on this. Just really quickly, the reason that Carlos Ini, who played wonderfully, played the Barry Sax on the new theme music, uh, made Arjun think of this is that Carlos does a lot of really cool jazz arrangements of video game music. You should really check his stuff out. Uh, he's insane in the rain music on YouTube. But like, go watch some of his stuff. It's really, really cool. So I did see a bit of this discussion back when I was still using Twitter. I've been on a Twitter break for most of 2021, and it's pretty great. Turns out you don't need to see what everybody thinks about everything all the time. <laughs> you can uh, you can just live your life and uh, get on there occasionally. But, uh, but that's not what we're talking about here. Uh, there was some discussion here. I think I saw maybe an article or a tweet or something. Somebody's saying something to the effect of because jazz musicians are reinterpreting video game music and video game music you know, historically going way back to really old Japanese games has had a lot of jazz harmony, a lot of really cool overlap stylistically with jazz, that somehow video games are going to lead to a resurgence of jazz music. And that to me, it's just like the latest in a long series of versions of this discussion where people start from the from the premise that jazz needs to be saved, which in my opinion anyway, kind of misses the truth of the matter and it's also pretty patronizing. There just seems to be a sort of a narrative that some people buy into, like, like the people you're writing in about, Arjun, who think that jazz died and needs to be resurrected, which isn't what happened. I mean, jazz as we know it now, or as we like popularly think of it, like hard bop, like the Horace Silver Quintet, you know, tenor sax, trumpet playing straight ahead head charts and improvising, like that was a style of music that was popular for a couple of decades and has come back in various permutations, like in the 90s, the neo-hard bop movement with Christian McBride and Josh Redman and all of those players. Like, 
you know, that kind of jazz has waxed and waned, I guess. But jazz didn't die any more than any other style of music that was popular for a period of time and then became less popular died. Jazz just became many, many more things. The rhythms and harmonies of rock and roll and pop music, certainly a lot of aspects of hip hop, all derived from jazz and blues. And those two styles of music were just further developments of the African-American musical tradition. People get attached to jazz, specifically instrumental improvisational jazz, for a number of reasons, but it's important to view it in context. It was just one movement in a long line of the development of black American music. So whether you're talking about blues song form or call and response or polyrhythmic grooves or stretch dissonances and blue notes, the more you start to hear this stuff, the more you'll realize that it goes way beyond any genre or any label, even a label as broad or you could say unhelpfully nebulous as jazz. And you can watch the way that these foundational elements changed and morphed and became all of these different styles. And you can always find these through lines that connect you all the way back to the beginning. And that's just American music, which granted, I largely talk about American music on this show, but you can go outward and you can talk about the music from other countries all around the world and other cultures. You can keep going back in time and trace elements that we hear in American music to Europe and to Western Africa and to all other parts of the world. Point is, music is always changing. And I think it is important for people who care about music and who like listening to music to embrace that change and to try to find new ways of hearing to open up their ears and to hear the stuff that they loved from previous decades, the way that that stuff echoes in the music that people are making today. And if you love jazz, one of the most reverberant echoes is happening in the world of video game music. I mean, if you play Persona 5 and you listen to Shoji Meguro's soundtrack in that video game, you're going to hear a lot of really cool jazz harmony and a lot of stuff that sounds like the kind of jazz music that you would find in the jazz section of your local record store. So I would just phrase it differently. I wouldn't say that that shows that jazz can be saved. In fact, it shows the opposite. It shows that jazz doesn't need to be saved. Jazz is alive and well in everything that you're listening to. And that's not to mention the fact that there's also a lively and adventurous scene for instrumental modern jazz music that's self-described as jazz. I mean, that is also still happening. It's just not as widespread or as popular as it maybe was in the 1950s or 1960s. So in a whole bunch of different ways, jazz is alive and well and it's everywhere, including video game music, which is really cool. There's a lot of great video game music out there, some of it explicitly jazz-influenced, and uh, there's a lot of jazz musicians doing cool stuff the other way around by reinterpreting game music, and Carlos is one of them. Definitely go check his stuff out. So anyways, jazz doesn't need saving, and hey, here's Carlos playing his arrangement of the aquatic Ruin Zone music from Sonic the Hedgehog. Our last question comes from Valerie, who writes, I've been listening to the music of Sophie since I heard of her tragic passing. One of her songs stuck out to me in particular. Is it Cold in the Water from her album Oil of Every Pearl's Unsides? While reading through the YouTube comments for this song, I saw one that said that due to this song's weird time signature, it is essentially a beatless song. While the song does have a very interesting sound, I am unsure about it being beatless. Is this observation true? 
So I've been listening to some Sophie as well. I was really sad to hear of her passing. She wasn't an artist whose music I was super familiar with, and now that I am, I'm even more sad about her passing because she was incredible. Uh, this song, Is It Cold in the Water, is super, super cool. And while it does have a really interesting groove, it is certainly not beatless. It has a beat. It's at about 120 beats per minute. It's just that Sophie has added a whole lot around that tempo to make it feel much more discombobulated and disorienting than it actually is. So the beat is right here. One, two, three, four, 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 one, two, three, four. It is a bit tricky though, and that's because it flips halfway through the phrase. The bass note starts on the downbeat, and if you're gonna listen for the pulse, you probably wanna start with that bass note, it's just these steady sine waves. But it's kind of on the upbeat uh, the second time when it moves halfway through the phrase. So you have to get all the way through, I guess, 16 beats before you get back around to one and know that you're in the right place. But this song is at 120 beats per minute, and there is a pulse there. It's just very easy to get tripped up by all the polyrhythms that are going on in the synth. So try to ignore those and just focus on counting and kind of trust yourself. And actually trust Sophie, because the main vocal melody is the other thing that's pretty demarcated in the tempo. So if you just listen to her voice, voice and to the bass at the beginning of the phrase, you'll start to feel it. Count steadily, and when it flips halfway through the phrase, just trust that you've got it and stay consistent, and you will be rewarded with a steady downbeat on one matching up with your counting if you just stick with it. Man, Sophie was really great. This album is super good, and I recommend listening to it, not just as a tribute to her, but because it's fantastic, beautiful music. That'll do it for the first Q&A episode of Strong Songs Year 3. Thanks to everybody who sent in a question, and to everybody whose question I didn't have a chance to get to. Don't worry, I have a huge document full of questions, which means if you'd like to submit a question for a future episode, by all means do so. Send an email to listeners at strongsongspodcast.com. Thank you so much to all of my patrons. You're all making this possible. And the more I work in podcasting, the more I appreciate the fact that I don't have any ads on this show. Most of the podcasts that I listen to have ads, and I totally understand why. But whenever I listen to one that doesn't have ads, I'm struck by how nice it is. So I hope that that's nice for all of you as well. And if you'd like to know more about how to support me making strong songs on ad-free, listener-supported music podcast, go to patreon.com slash strong songs. Of course, you can support the show in other ways. You can buy some merch from the Strong Songs store. There's a link for that along with social stuff. Twitter, Instagram, and the Strong Songs playlist down in the show notes. And you can just tell people about the show. Lots of people tell me they're spreading the word, telling friends and family, and that really means a lot. That is helping the show immeasurably, so thanks to everyone who's spreading the word. Our outro soloist this time is the great Rob Reich on accordion, and Rob has some cool new projects going, so check out his links in the show notes too. So give Rob some love, stick around for his solo, and I'll be back in two weeks with yet another Strong Song.
Thank you. 